From the boardroom to the locker room, sport captures the imagination like little else. In this podcast, we talk to the men and women who make the big decisions and those who make the big plays to find out where sport is and, importantly, where it's going. But we do so through the only eyes that matter, those of the fan. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Are You Not Entertained? Here to entertain you, as always, the two men who flank this thing with me every week, Giles Morgan and Roger Mitchell. Gentlemen, how are you? Super, Grant. Good to hear from you. Great to see Giles again made it up the stairs on one Achilles. It's always a pleasure to see the pirate make it under these circumstances. Well, I will say, actually, I mean, it's sweet of you to say, and both thanks so much for the cards of uh, your well wishes, which were well received. Thank you for that. Um, I've had some near misses, I must say, sort of toppling over. Um, I am maybe the gold medalist for the worst crutch performer, as it were. <laughs> as I said, that, that sounded wrong. Yes. Well, well, congratulations. I'd, I'd love to know what the trophy looks like. <laughs> <laughs> Crutch performer. <laughs> oh dear. Have we got a show to do? <laughs> we, we do, but I, I think we've just finished it. It's been great for all of you who are listening. Thanks for joining us for these last two minutes. <laughs> well, we have, a, we have a, a fantastic guest joining us shortly. A dear friend of mine, Louis Garve, who is now one of the uh, owners of uh, Beeritz Rugby Club in France. And um, Louis is a, a huge rugby fan. He's a fellow finance guy. I've known Louis for a long time. And uh, I remember when he bought into Beeritz a few years ago, we talked about it then. And since then, there's a lot of water flung under the bridge. And I think what's what happened to them at the end of last season is just a, a phenomenal story. And it sets us up really well just to hear about the kind of trials and tribulations of, of what was a second tier provincial French rugby club now going into the big time. Spoiler alert there. But, gents, this should be a really entertaining conversation. Louis, fantastic company, and uh, it's a great story to tell. Yeah, I mean, Louis is one of the most insightful as well as charming commentators on macrofinance and wealth management, portfolio, stock selections, everything like that. And the interesting thing for me is that somebody of that background getting, I won't say dragged or sucked into Baritz, but I think he was the white knight at the last hour. And it'll be really fascinating to see how somebody from his background uh, gets into sport and finds about the quirkiness of managing a, a, a sports franchise. I think this is going to be great. Yeah, I can't wait. Anyone who puts their, their hand in their pocket to bail out and help out rugby, the world's greatest game, in my view, friend of mine for life so can't wait to hear from him fantastic well let's bring louis in ah the only person i know whose actual face is better looking than his headshot it sickens me every time <laughs> uh, are you talking about me <laughs> yes i am talking about you you annoyingly handsome frenchman you how are you mate always good to see you it's uh, it's been too long thanks uh, thanks so much for having me it's been it's been way too long and hopefully with borders opening up around the world we can uh, we can have a beer again at some point soon i certainly hope so um listen the, the subject at hand today is rugby and uh your your kind of lifelong love affair with with the sport initially um 
and uh, and and the, the the club that you've ended up owning. But before we, we get into that, I just want to introduce you to my two co-hosts here, uh, Roger Mitchell and Giles Morgan, who are here for the conversation. Fellas, come on in. Lovely to see you, Louis. I've been a great admirer of all your thought leadership and and my 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 day job of finance. Great to have you on this podcast. A real buzz for me. Thank you so yeah. much. Very kind. And likewise, I, I've spent a lot of my uh, career in Hong Kong, as you will have known now with HSBC. And I think our paths might have um, crossed, but certainly the people that you do cross paths with, I have too. So God knows what's going to happen in the next hour. But let's, uh, I've got a glass of wine. I've got a glass of wine, so I'm well prepared. <laughs> so, so, Louis, let, 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 I mean, let's, let, let's kick off at the beginning and, your, and your, how your kind of love affair with rugby, where and how it began. Well, I originally come from the southwest of France and uh, from outside of Toulouse, it's a small town called Ouche. And, you know, rugby is a huge part of the culture there. Uh, you know, if you look at France, um, rugby, well, rugby has now gone pretty much across the country. But when I was growing up, it was very much a sort of southwest affair. Uh, rugby was really played really south of the Loire, uh, west of the of the, the Rhône. And, you know, still today, when you travel through France, that part of France, at least, um, you seldom see soccer pitches. You, you mostly see rugby pitches. Um, I'll tell you a little anecdote on this. When my wife and I got married, you know, in the Catholic church, you do pre-cana, you meet with, you go for a sort of weekend retreat uh, with a priest and, you know, talk about marriage and with other couples, etc. And the priest asked us a question. He says, well, uh, you know, when there's, when there's a fight, you know, how'd you guys uh, solve it. And I say, well, you know, we, we don't really fight a lot, to be honest, but, you know, I kind of believe, you know, we sort of compromise. And uh, anyway, didn't Christ uh, teach us to, you know, tend the other cheek? And it, the priest looked at me and disgusted. He said, tend the other cheek, tend the other cheek. Have you never played rugby in your life? Who tends the <laughs> other cheek? He was absolutely appalled. <laughs> <laughs> so there you have it. That's the part of France I come from. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. Yeah. So, you, but you, but you, so obviously you played when you were you were a kid. Oh yeah, um, no, I still what, play today. Yeah, um, no, I, I know you do. But, but what, what what kind of what what kind of level are we talking here as as a kid? Uh, oh, uh, horrible throughout. You know, I'm slow. I um, I I can't pass to my right. I can only pass to my left. Uh, the only the only thing I bring to the party is uh, is a body that I can throw around uh, and a few extra kilos at this point. What, 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 but, what position are you? What uh, position are you? Um, so, you know, as, uh, as you get older, I used to play in the back row, but as you get older, you keep, you keep getting pushed forward. So now I'm definitely <laughs> a front row player, uh, which, you know, at the level I play at the advantage, it means that, you know, I, I get in the scrum and by the time I come out of the scrum, usually it's another scrum. So I can just walk through there. And not get too well, if, if it's any consolation to you, Louis, um, one of the greatest players of all time, um, Sir Gareth Edwards, he could only pass off one hand as well. And he, he got to the Pantheon. So there's still time. <laughs> So there's still hope, exactly. I, that's that's what I hope. Um, so yeah, no, I uh, I actually grew up uh, playing hooker when I was uh, young. Then I moved to the back row when I was playing at university, and because I, I just wasn't thick enough. Um, and then um, as I put on the pounds, I started moving back uh, into my initial love, and I'm back to being a hooker. You play, you learn your craft playing um, Southwest um, rugby in France, and I've I've played down there. Uh, in Toulouse once I've told it on another podcast story and anyway it was it was a fantastic weekend that I don't remember if you know what I mean yeah. um I I wondered when you went to Hong Kong and you play for the famous Valley 
uh, yep. football club, which I know well. Uh, similarities between Valley and uh, Southwest France rugby, I would say, are quite similar. Absolutely. Uh, well, um, yes and no. Uh, Hong Kong rugby is much cleaner than French rugby. Um, you know, it's uh, French rugby is yeah, but uh, not Valley. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I I play for Valley, so you know it's, it's clean yeah. as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, yeah, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, I, um, no, but uh, no Valley. You know, I think if you look at Hong Kong, there's basically six six big clubs, right? You have a football club, which is all the posh English guys. Uh, you have Kowloon, which is all the the uh, the, the northern English guys. Uh, Scottish, which is obviously the Scots cricket club, which is mostly Aussies and DA, which is mostly uh, Hong Kong Chinese, and then there's Valley, which is the remnants, which basically makes is really a few Yarpies, a few Kiwis, and uh, and a, a fair amount of French people. Fantastic. So yeah, maybe I could see why people would think we're dirty, since we do have our quota of <laughs> French people and Yarpies as well. <laughs> so Lou, when you when you were growing up, uh, who would be the French? players that you was it was it reeve given your position give me an idea of who your kind of like reference point is no look reeve reeve uh, is obviously in the pantheon but you know when i was growing up um another guy in the pantheon would have been serge blanco of course yeah uh, back who's uh, yeah he's a, he's a back but it was you know as a kid it was um yeah i, I grew up with the generation of french backs when when they got the ball between philippe Sedar, uh, yeah. serge blanco you, you never knew what was going to happen electric um, and it was uh, it was really exciting rugby to watch. Um, and meanwhile, of course, you did have the guys in the front row, the you know the Pascal Ondar, the Daniel Dubrocal, who were doing a lot of the hard work that allowed these guys to. Uh, no, they to, were doing a lot of unspeakable things. <laughs> the hard work. Well, you know, that's come, the euphemism. <laughs> come, come the revolution, you know, the, the the backs will be the first to be lined up and shot for profiting from the work of others. <laughs> So, so Louis, let, let, let's let's talk a little bit about Beeritz, the, the club that, yeah. that you, you've ended up as the owner of, because it's you know it's a storied franchise in French rugby. You know, it goes back. I think it was founded. Was it founded in the 19th century? I think it's certainly... yeah. It's uh, it's the uh, I think it's the third oldest French club. Yeah. Um, so, so just t talk a little bit about the history of the club, because you know there'll be people listening to this podcast who didn't have a clue there were organised sports leagues going back that far. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, Biarritz actually was. Um, so you know, it's it's a city on the Atlantic Ocean. It, it's uh, it's obviously well known for its surfing, but uh, back in the late 19th century, it was actually a big destination for English tourists, and. Uh, you know, actually, the Queen Victoria used to go down there and you know spend holidays, and it was sort of the a Nice before Nice. It was the the, the one big um, big tourist destination, and with all the English uh, came rugby. So I guess we have to be thankful to them for that. And <laughs> he said, begrudgingly. Um, <laughs> uh, so yeah, no. So Biarritz is one of, of the oldest clubs. It had, uh, you know, like all the clubs, periods of uh, of glory and periods of uh, not so glorious. When rugby turned professional in France, uh, Biarritz was was actually managed by uh, Serge Blanco, who was a child of the club. He played his whole career in Biarritz, and then later on became its president. And Blanco did a terrific job at the turn of professionalization, and you know, basically the Biarritz club was the sort of the first club with, they were called the Galacticos. You know, you had Yashvili, Aridonoki, Serge Betson, Damien Trai, uh, Nicolas Brusque, like a, 
well, you know, half of the French team was playing for Biarritz in the early 2000s, and mm-hmm. and that meant titles. So you know, we uh, we had won French titles, we won uh, European Challenge Cups, we lost uh, final uh, the final of the European Champions Cup. But no, it was a, a period of glory, and then. You know, for a number of reasons we can discuss if you want, but the the, the no, club basically yeah. slipped. The club slipped and got relegated. And as it got relegated, it never really adjusted its budget to being in the second division, and basically ended up uh, on the verge of bankruptcy. At which point, uh, Serge Blanco called me and said, "Look, you can't let this this club go bust, etc. It's a historical franchise." So I, my father and I, bought. Uh, uh, the club a week before it was basically going bust uh, three and a half years ago and you know tried to restructure it put it back on the right tracks and uh, this year we won promotion back to the top 14 so uh, we have a, a very big season ahead of us because the the top 14 meanwhile in the past sort of 10 years while we weren't there has uh, gone stronger better bigger yeah. budgets all the best players in the world now come to play in the, the really in the top 14. So it's going to be a daunting task for us to, uh, to not go back down. Louis, give us some, some context of, of, we talked about Southwest rugby and, and obviously the history of Biarritz and others like Toulouse, other great clubs that you have in the Southwest of France. For me, I'm a, I'm a Welshman and I'm, I've been brought up with singing and uh, a, a noisy supporter base. And I have been, and I've, I've watched rugby down in the, in the Southwest there's a similarity, isn't there? There's a, a real joie de vivre about the way that that, that people from the southwest um, support rugby far, and you said far more than football. We had Jerry Cardinal on the uh, on our podcast who bought Toulouse Football Club, um, as you know, whatever it was, f- fifteen months ago or something, and and someone called in to me and said, uh, did he actually know which sport he'd got? Did he get the wrong sport? <laughs> In terms of that passion and fan base, is it? But just give yep. us that comparison between football and rugby as it relates to Biarritz, Toulouse, Southwest in general. Yeah, so you know, rugby in France is a, uh, a sport uh, the, du terroir. I, I I can't really translate it, but yeah. basically of your territory. Of the earth, yeah. Uh, and people identify with their rugby club in the southwest of France in a way that you don't see in, in, in other sports. And, you know, I'll give you a, a simple example. You know, one of the great clubs in the top 14 is the, town, is the club of Castres. Now, Castres, Castres is a town of 40,000 people. Uh, they have a 25,000-person stadium that they fill every game. Uh, you know, uh, so I mean, just to 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 give you, or uh, you know, La Rochelle is a town of probably eighty, ninety thousand people. They have they have a stadium of twenty thousand people also that they fill every game, and there's lines to be able to buy season's tickets. Um, wow. So no, there is an identification of your territory with your club, and you know, for the rivalry games the enthusiasm it brings is like nothing you've ever seen. Um, so our, our rival, we have an especially strong rivalry because we are, our rival, actually, the club is just four kilometers away. Huh. Uh, the club of Bayonne is, is four kilometers away. And, you know, both the clubs like to claim that they're the club representing the Basque country. So Biarritz is the, in the middle of the Basque country, mm-hmm. which is also its own sort of subculture within France, right? They have their own language. Uh, they have their, their, have their own sports. You know, they play Jailai and they play rugby. Uh, and rugby is a big part of the identity. And so, you know, it's, it 
you know, if you're from Biarritz, if you're from Bayonne, you could lose every game in the season as long as you win the rivalry game. The season's been yeah. smashing success. Yeah. yeah. Uh, as long as you're the, you know, the, yeah. the world champion of the best country, then the season has been great. Uh, which is which made this year so very special. Uh, maybe I'm jumping the gun, but no, no, yeah, let's go, let's go say that, let's no, let's let's say that story because it's it's it's, story, it's, sure. it's all right, such an, all right. such let, an let exciting me, story. Let me let me let me come in then because um, really fascinated by. The, the club is struggling. You get a, a, an emergency 11th hour call. Yep. You're a, you're a world-class uh, wealth manager. You know your way around balance sheets and finance. Did you look at the numbers, Louis? Oh, Did yeah, you look no, at the numbers? <laughs> <laughs> you got Serge Blanco on the phone. You do what you're told. It's, uh, it's, I don't know, it's very much like, uh, no, people... People ask me, how'd you get involved in this? It's like, you know, it's, it's like every value stock you ever buy. You start small and then you start, you, you rule the day <laughs> that, uh, that you ever got involved. And, and it's like, oh, you know, in for a penny and for a pound. Um, look, no, I knew, uh, I knew the, pl- the place was a mess. I knew the place was a mess. I didn't know it was as much of a mess as, as it was. I mean, I knew the, the numbers. Uh, I knew the numbers were bad, to your point, and that wasn't that hard to, to figure out. The, the, the big challenge was how do you make the bad numbers look good? You know, mm-hmm. we came in, the club had uh, over 600 suppliers. So we, we had people that we were writing checks to that we didn't even know what they were for. And the big challenge we confronted, and this part isn't funny, but the, the big confronted we, we challenged is basically as all this was, was happening, the club had a managing director, um, a, a, lovely, a lovely man who, you know, he was sort of an old guard, didn't put anything mm-hmm. in computers, uh, everything was in his head. And uh, he died of a heart attack as basically the club was, was going bust. Uh, he dies of a heart attack. So all of a sudden, nobody knows anything. So we come in and we know we're getting basically invoices, suppliers, and we don't know what for because it's yeah. no, in no system. It's in no, so, so the first year was, uh, was, you know, pretty hair raising. And we, you know, we had to call in a lot, basically all the suppliers like, okay, you know, what do we pay you for? Uh, yeah. so, and so it was a steep, steep learning curve. Uh, and here I have to commend, um, uh, you know, the, the, the managing director, a young chap who worked for me in Hong Kong that I put in, in charge of this, a guy called Jean-Baptiste Aldiger. And he's, he basically was in charge of, you know, cleaning out uh, RGS stables. And yep. you don't make a lot of friends doing that. No, as you, sure. as you move from 600 suppliers down to 21, uh, you, uh, <laughs> you, you don't win a lot of uh, popularity points. But uh, he went through it and... And we're, the, we're stronger and the better for it now. Wow. So, so Louis, t- just talk a little bit about what happened to Biarritz. Because it, I, I think f- for me, as a guy whose background is more football than rugby, I, I played rugby as a kid, but my first love was football. It seems unlikely that a club of the stature of Biarritz in, in, in a football context could fall so far so fast. It doesn't seem to be able to happen that way. So, so what went wrong and how did the club fall so dramatically? Well, so, you know, the first big difference between soccer and or football and, uh, and rugby is, you know, the, the TV rights aren't exactly the same, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, the TV rights in football are so big that, yes, to your point, it affords you a lot of mistakes. You can make a lot of mistakes and, right. and come out of it okay on the other side. Uh, so that, that's, that's number one. The money in rugby just is nowhere near as big. The second point, of course, is your payroll depth is, is much bigger. There, there is some wear and tear in, um, in rugby players. 
to start off a season properly, you need nine or 10 props on the roster. Yeah, I mean, sure. it's just, uh, it's just, yeah. And then you, for every position you need three or four. And it's not like in soccer where you can tell, you know, your central defender, okay, you're going to play right back this, uh, this game because, you know, it's hard to tell your second row, you're going to play scrum half. <laughs> right. uh, it's, so, you know, you need, you need a, a pretty deep bench and how can it go wrong? Well, the first thing that can go wrong, of course, is you can get your recruitment wrong. And, you know, maybe your second and third string players aren't good and your first string players get injured. And before you know it, you're in deep trouble. So, so, that, so that's the, the first point. Your second point, and I think this is where Biarritz got it wrong, is if you're going to be financially more or less okay, you actually need to have guys come through your academy. You yeah. need to have young players. Basically, you need your, young, your own young players to be your third and fourth string guys. Uh, yep. you, you know, you recruit your first and second strings and then your third and fourth strings have to be the 19, 20, 21 year olds that have come through your own system uh, and that you pay peanuts. But, you know, they're there for game experience, et cetera. They're there to show themselves. And that's how you have a positive ecosystem. And I think Biarritz basically failed to invest in their academy. They failed to invest in their ecosystem. And they were, uh, the way it went wrong is they were, they were based on this Galactico system where they would just blow their budget on hiring the big stars, mm-hmm. uh, on hiring the Manolo Ridono Keys of this world and the Serge Betsens and bring these guys in. Now, what they did wrong is they kept these guys too long. They, you know, when they were 32, 33, they kept extending them and extending them. So they, they weren't quite as performant. They got injured more. And then you don't have the third and fourth string guy to step in at the back. And this combination of keeping your old stars too long and not investing in your academy were were the two, I think, the the two big mistakes. Now, granted, the big challenge for Biarritz, given where it is, is in terms of investing in its academy, is where we're in a part of France where there's a lot of competition for the youth players. You know, if you're... Uh, you know, if you're very good in the southwest of France, you go to Toulouse, you go to Bordeaux. Mm-hmm. Um, Bayonne now has much, much better facilities than we do. We have like by far the shittiest facilities of anybody out mm-hmm. there. Uh, so if you're a, a youth player, you say, oh, well, I draw, and Toulouse comes knocking on your door. That's where you go. So, you know, some clubs have advantages in that way, like Clermont. You know, it's they're basically alone in their region. So that like any any decent youth ends up with them. Or frankly, the two Parisian clubs, because there's so many kids in Paris, right? Yeah. So if you're Stade Francais and if you're Racine, you've got such a huge catchment area. So, you know, what we've we've reinvested a lot in the academy, but what we found is we've actually had to go cross border. So we've dipped into Spain, uh, where in the Basque part of Spain where there's some kids playing rugby and we found some some promising kids. We've gone to Georgia, we've gone to Fiji, we've gone to New Zealand, South Africa, Australia. This is the advantage we have, of course, in that, you know, my director of rugby is a Kiwi and, uh, you know, I, I have a decent international network. Yeah. And so that's that's the advantage I'd have against other clubs because for us to prospect in our own region is, is getting, it's just too tough. Louis, so now that you've explained that, I guess uh, I'm not so expert on French rugby broadcasting rights, but I guess the top division has got a little bit more money. Oh, yeah. yeah. Right. So you must be in the phase now of like <laughs> going. Of yeah. <laughs> and, and then like, you know, no, the serious point, because everything you said resonates so much with um, everything that we've heard about football owners and everything like that recruitment um you you're you're probably going to have to be really good on bang for buck and and recruiting really really well can i ask you 
How are you doing that? Is it still the old rugby, you know, guys in the bunny money ballroom says we know how to recruit or are you using data? I'm just curious, man. So um, we're, we're in a tight spot uh, because when you go up, so, you know, we went up on June 13th and on July 14th, you got to turn in your squad. So, you know, we, we, we were oh, in the second Jesus. division last year. We're, we're in the second division last year and you play the playoffs. We knew we were going to be in the sixth early on, but all six teams are good and only one, maybe two go up depending yeah. on the playoff game. So, you know, we really had one chance at one chance out of three or four to go yeah. up, maybe, maybe one chance. Out. So, you know, it's hard to go out and recruit top stars. Yeah. If you, well, first of all, top stars don't want to come to you if you're in the second division. They'll only look at you if you're in the first division. And so we basically have a month, but by that point, everybody's already signed other places. Yeah. So the one advantage we have, we, the one, perhaps the one advantage we've had is COVID has basically wrecked havoc on the unions of the Southern hemisphere, in yeah. Australia, yeah, in New Zealand and in South Africa. So all of a sudden there's players that, you know, wouldn't even talk to us because they're getting huge, typically big contracts with their union uh, that all of a sudden are interested in talking to us. So this, we were lucky enough, for example, to recruit uh, a Wallaby, a guy called Tevita Karidrani, who plays center for, for Australia. Um, now, how did we get him? Very simple. We already had a Wallaby, a guy called Henry Spate, uh, and they're like beyond best friends. Uh, they've played together almost their whole careers. They're both Fijians uh, uh, living yeah. in Australia. They've been, you know, as tight as two fingers in the hand. And basically, Henry convinced Tevita to come. But we were also lucky to get a, a former All Black uh, called Elliot Dixon, a flanker, sort of the same story. Now, to answer your question, is it all data? Is it all relationships? You know, the first thing is, I think, when you build a squad, and especially a rugby squad, mm -hmm. I think you want to go with the, the All Black rule of no assholes. Yeah, um, love that. You, you know, you want to make sure that you have guys who are going to fit in a, a squad profile and 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 get involved and and basically you aren't just there for the money. So the that element, you know, first you pass that element, then you go into the data. Uh, there's no point in looking at the data if you're dealing with a jerk on the other side. Yeah. Um, so then you go in, into the data, and here, you know every position, you know, pretty much what you're looking for. You know, do you want a, a, a flank? Do you need a flanker who's, who's more a jumper in the line out? Who's more of a runner? Who's more of a, a, a bull You know, mm -hmm. it's getting so specialized that, you know, once you know, okay, you know, I'm looking for a flanker who is at least one meter 92, who's going to jump in the line outs, et cetera. It really narrows it down. Um, okay. And so you go, you know, position by position, and, and again, you know, I think building a rugby team, I think I've Grant and I have already talked about this, but it's, it's a lot like building a portfolio. You need good diversification. Um, yeah. You expect different people to do different things, just like you expect your different assets to behave differently at different times. And so, yeah, the data, you know, just like when you build a portfolio, you need data. You need to see, okay, how does, you know, this asset behave in this environment? 
for a rugby player, you do the same. How does this player behave in this environment? Because that's what I'll need him for. So yes, data is very important. And on this front, you know, we get more and more data. This is the big change of the past 10 years, you know, mm-hmm. with, with the GPS they have yeah. now on the back of the jersey, yeah. with uh, you, 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 you get all this. And, you know, there's services. We pay the service, I think, something like 20,000 euros a year to basically get all the data on all the players on every game. And it covers... Um, sure. and so it's, it covers basically anybody who's playing professional rugby in, in one of the major leagues, whether it's the UK, whether it's France, whether it's, uh, Australia, et cetera. So you get, you, you, yeah, that's, that's the big thing. And then, you know, once you have all that, it's, it's interviews, you know, mm. you talk to the guy, uh, you explain what you expect from him because, you know, it's, uh, you, you know, this is what we need from you. Is this something you'd feel comfortable doing? Sometimes the answer is no. That's not what I'm looking for. Oh, okay. Good luck to you. Uh, so, Louis, let me let me let me ask you. Um, you're 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 sitting approaching a season. You're back in the in the top flight. Yep. Um, you're nervous. You've got the squad, etc., yes. etc. Et <laughs> nervous doesn't begin to describe it. <laughs> <laughs> More like scared. Yeah, scared. You're scared. Yes. Um, what is what is the reasonable expectation then in season one, other than survival? That's it. Is I it, mean, let's, let's be, let's be dead honest. You know, yeah. the, uh, as you look through your calendar, cause the calendar came out about a week ago and you think, okay, which games are we hoping to win? You realize, shit, there's no easy game. There's not a single, you know, when you're in the second division, uh, you're like, okay, this game, we're going to thump them. Uh, <laughs> you know, this game, we got to, you know, get offensive bonus points, et cetera. Um, and if we don't get the offensive bonus, but there's no such game in the top 14. Uh, at least not for us. So no, the, the you're the easy survival. game, Louis. Louis yeah, you're I'm, the easy I'm, game. I'm, I'm everybody's easy game. Exactly. <laughs> if you don't know who the who the polo is around the poker <laughs> table, it's you. That's, that's, that's me. Oh no, I'm, I'm I'm very well aware. Very well aware. The um. So no, it's um, it's so so do your first. So do you build? Is it? So do you build within that, as well as looking at, obviously, the players who are available, the no arsehole policy, which I think in rugby, I always think that rugby is the ultimate game, which almost self-polices itself as well, is that, you know, it tends to be if they don't like, you know, if you don't like the winger, your own prop's going to smack them before anybody else. (laughs) That's right. But, but, But I wonder, too, as you look at building a team, like building a portfolio, building a business, how you feel about building the spirit, the esprit de corps, for Beerits in version 2.0, which makes it harder to leave for those you don't. The, the spirit of, you know, every every Hollywood film made on sport, which is the underdog sort of gets through it at the end and it's Morgan Freeman or someone playing the role. I wonder how you think about management of that esprit de corps as you get into the next season. So I think we have that in spades, actually. And I think that's what carried us through. You know, if you look at our, our semifinal game was against Van, and we were down by 12 points with 10 minutes to go. Oh, wow. Uh, and we scored, we scored the winning try uh, in, uh, in injury time. Uh, and we and under the post, we needed under the post because our kicker had literally missed every kick. We ended up beating them five tries to three, but by just one point. So you know we we have this never say die. We we won something like three or four games 
important games last season after the buzzer. Uh, so we definitely, you know, we have this never say die attitude in spade. And of course, uh, maybe we'll talk about it, but our, our game with which we went up against Bayonne. Yeah, uh, we'll, we'll, was, we'll definitely, we'll definitely was, talk about that. Was, uh, no, let's was, talk about that because, yeah, right that, after the semi. Well, yeah, I, but, but what, what, what I'd love to do, because it it's such a fantastic story and such a great yeah. end to a season for... I mean, I can't even imagine for you. For me, as a neutral watching it, it was I was on the edge of my seat. But, but for you, it must be extraordinary. But, but talk us through that. I mean, you've, you've given us a hint of it, but the the highs and lows of of this season that's yeah. that's so important, and and that tension and excitement building towards the end, because the, the end is just I mean, it's storybook stuff. Yeah, it is. I mean, honestly, you'd uh, you'd see it in a Disney movie. You'd think right. it was uh, it was it was overdone. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah. So first is that semifinal win against uh, against Van, uh, where we come back. You know, right right at the buzzer. You know, fairy, fairy tale stuff. And it's it's at their ground, and they were favored because it's at their ground. They finished higher than us during the season, and they're a remarkable team. They're a great team, uh, very strong. Uh, they they'd beaten us at our house uh, during. Um, uh, which was probably the low for us. Now, when they beat us at our house, the low for us was we we got COVID. Uh, our team got COVID around October, and basically, uh, 33 of our squad uh, wow. tested positive, and we were basically sidelined for a month without training. You know, with self isolating, no training, etc. And you come back, and you, you're just not match fit, right? But you know, we came back. We had a week of training. We play Van. We lose. We play Valence Roman, which is the last team in the in the championship. We lose, and you know the, the boys were just you know they 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 were tired, and you could tell like we'd have a good first half, and the second half we'd collapse, and so that was very much the the low of the season. And because we missed a, a whole month and missed a bunch of games, it also meant that we had to do 15 games in a row, which you know in, in rugby terms is hard. You know a rugby game yeah. is it's it's you know the way it works usually is the way it works in France is you have five games on then one week off five games on then one week off but we had to go through three three blocks of basically 15 games in a row and yeah the boys were you know really really tired at the end uh, really really shattered and then we got back into the rhythm uh, we made it to the playoffs so things were good we beat van in uh, in the semifinal we beat Grenoble in the quarterfinal we beat van in the semifinal we got up to Montpellier for the final, and uh, the final is against Perpignan. And they thump us in the final. They eat us up front. Uh, their forwards destroy our forwards. And, uh, you know, you know, you know the old story, no scrum, no win. And then we have to turn around, and we go back to Biarritz. And in Biarritz, as we're traveling back, we find out that we have to play Bayonne. Uh, so the way it works is the last of the top 14 automatically goes down and whoever finishes 13th plays a one playoff game against uh, whoever finished uh, basically second of the Pro D2. So it's this this one playoff game and it was going to be Po. And basically at the very last game, Po scores a try in the corner 82nd minute to basically <laughs> so that they finish 12th, Bayonne falls to 13th. So now we have to play Bayonne our rival from four miles away, from four kilometers away. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, these games are big to begin with, but now all of a sudden, whoever, if Bayern loses, they go down. If yeah. we win, we go up. I mean, the stakes are just absolutely massive. Uh, yeah. And so then we get to what I think was the biggest game I've been to in my life, but of course I'm somewhat partial. No, but, but, but <laughs> I mean, but talk people through, because there will be a lot of people, A, that haven't, 
that don't know what happened in this game. Yeah. Um, B, don't even think the ending is how games ever end. I had no yeah. idea that this could actually happen. And so C, we'll be, uh, we'll be Googling it on YouTube after this because it's extraordinary. So I'll start off, uh, you know, I get to the stadium and I'm sitting in, in the presidential box and the mayor of is next to me. And the mayor of tells me, you know, I think this game is going to finish on penalties. And, uh, and she's a dud. I mean, she's, she's a dunce and she doesn't know anything about anything. And, uh, you know, sort of, sort of, I, I get all condescending on her. I say, you know, Madam Mayor, I've, you know, I've been to, to many rugby games, played in many rugby games. They never finish on penalties. Uh, you know, they, it just, it just doesn't happen. It doesn't happen because obviously if the score is tied, you go to extra time. If the score is still tied, which is unusual in rugby, but yeah. the score is still tied, then you go to uh, the number of cards uh, whoever has, you know, if like, let's say one team has two yellow cards and another team has one, then whoever had the one wins. Uh, if that's tied, you go to the number of penalties, whoever gave less penalties away. And if that's tied, you go to, to penalties, but that's only happened twice before. Uh, uh, yeah. I've, I've it, never, I've never heard of that. In it, all yeah, years it's, of happened, it's happened once in a European cup between Cardiff and Leicester. Uh, and it's happened once in France between Aja and Toulouse. But really, that's it. Like in, you know, 100 years of right, because what are the odds that you have the same number of penalties, right? Uh, after all he, this. He called uh, it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sorry, I am all kind of saying, like, you know, Madam Mayor, this just doesn't happen. But anyway, enjoy the game. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, sure enough. Uh, so at the end of the half, the first half, it's uh, 3-0 for us. Uh, so, you know, just one, one uh, penalty kick. Uh, by the end of full time, it's 3-3. Uh, one penalty uh, kick each. Having said that, at the end of full time, basically with 45 seconds to go, Bayonne has the ball and they're on our line. They're literally one or two yards away and they're hammering us, trying trying to break through. And they've got their fly half in a position to drop kick the ball. He's in front yeah. of the posts, you know, easy. All they need to do is slot a three drop goal. I mean, even a prop could could uh, could could slot that one in. It's uh, it's it's so easy, and um, they're trying to wind down the clock to drop to do the drop once uh, once yeah. the clock is gone, so that we don't have a chance to come back. And sure enough, Steph Armitage. Now, some of you may remember Stefan Armitage. He played uh, four or five times for England. He was European Player of the Year of 2016. And this goes back to the to the never say die spirit. Um, Steph Armitage was basically let go and sort of forgotten about and you know he still has a lot of rugby in him and he wanted to prove that he still had a lot of rugby in him and he joined us and he's been such an inspirational leader for, for the whole squad anyway you know 10 seconds to go he scavenges the ball right yeah. right on our line uh to bring it into extra time and extra time comes in finishes six six on extra time then you go through the rigmarole, they count the penalties. I mean, the refs themselves ran to the sideline to check what the rule book was saying because yeah. the refs themselves didn't know. You literally saw the camera. They opened the rule book and they're like looking. <laughs> um, and so it goes to penalties. And, you know, it's just like your 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 England uh, game, uh, the final. It's You have to feel sorry for the guys who, who missed the, the penalty. So the way it works in rugby is you put the balls on the 22-meter line and you can kick from wherever you want, but it has to be on the 22-meter line until basically someone misses. So Bayon missed, a, a young, one of the young wingers missed, and Steph Armitage came in 
as a number eight and uh, and slot, slotted uh, slotted it and it was and then you know the, the stadium was invaded by all the fans everybody was embracing everyone needless to say nobody had masks so two really <laughs> unusual things happened that night uh, the first is that you had a game finish on penalties which again never happens the second is, you know, the crowd erupted. It was all over by 9 p.m. Uh, by 10.30 p.m., we were receiving a letter from the, the préfet, which is the, like the, you know, the French governor of the area. We're receiving a letter from the préfet for the pitch invasion and the people not wearing masks and, you know, all the, all the, uh, all the, the failure of, to, to public health and this and that. So we managed to do two exceptional things. Uh, first, win on penalties. And second, we managed to make a préfet work at 10.30 p.m. on Saturday night, <laughs> which must be a first in the history of the French Republic. <laughs> it's, a, it's amazing. I mean, I, I, so I watched the highlights. I, I can't see it over here live, but I watched the highlights and it was, it was absolutely unbelievable. And I had no idea that a rugby game could finish on penalties. I've never seen that in, in all the years I've watched rugby, ever. Yeah. Uh, you, might not, you might never see it again. Yeah, absolutely. You'll also probably never see a prefab work at 10.30pm <laughs> on, on a Saturday night. <laughs> Louis, l l amazing story. And I can't wait. Presumably you've got the film rights all set up so that... Oh, it's uh, going to be a great Disney movie. Oh, yeah. yeah. It'll be a great <laughs> Disney movie. As long as you don't have Matt Damon playing anybody because it just doesn't work. <laughs> so just let me... As a, as a finance guy as well, and, and we've talked about your own... You know, if Serge Blanco told me to do something, even smoke 60 G10, I'd probably would as well because <laughs> He's you don't get Oh, good. That, that is a relief. Um, yeah, yeah, he smoked for a couple of lifetimes. Um, yeah. I, I wonder, we're now seeing all the time um, stories, both in, in France and in the UK, all over the world, of, of private equity coming into rugby union. Yep. And I'm very interested to know your view. This is a game that you and I both grew up with and love and played a, a long time. And it was the amateur game, kind of, in France. It was always a bit professional, like in Wales, but if you a few quid in the boot yep. but basically an amateur game goes professional and is the darling sport of many countries middle class sport high wealth with 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 um the, the fans and so on fast forward 10 years what do you think rugby union is going to be do you think it's worth it do you think all this private equity coming in is good for the game i'm just interested as someone who sees both sides you're clearly a passionate rugby man but also someone in finance where does rugby go well, so there's two different questions, uh, whether it's worth it or whether it's good for the game. So whether it's worth it, I think it will be actually. Uh, you know, the, the reality is TV rights keep going up. Now, granted, uh, you know, they're, they're going to be more and more concentrated on, on a small number of outfits, you know, the All Blacks, the French League, the, the England, English League, you know, the, the Irish clubs. Uh, but TV rights keep going up because at the end of the day, that's really the only thing, the only reason people now tune on to TV, right? You know, people don't tune on to TV to watch the news. People don't tune on to TV to watch TV series. All this, you know, you can do through Netflix, you can do on your computer. The only thing people still watch live on TV is sports, which yeah. means that if you're a TV channel, if you're NBC, if you're a... Uh, Canal Plus, if you're any one of these guys and you want to exist, you have no choice but to pay more and more for, for, for the sports. Now, granted, to your point, it goes into fewer and fewer pockets and into fewer and fewer franchises. So, you know, I think the the aim of uh, of private equity is to basically try to own these franchises, own these TV rights for a very long time. And And to be honest, when you look at the price of rugby, relative to say the price of soccer or the price of baseball or American football or hockey, et cetera. 
I think rugby is the biggest bargain in the world by 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 a long shot. You know, if you're willing to take a 10-year view, yes, to your point, lots of people, you know, when England play France for the Six Nations, lots of people, to, you know, probably 30, 35 million people tune in for that uh, between between the two countries. Finals of the World Cup, semifinals of the World Cup are massively watched events. Look at, you know, the... This, more people in England have been tuning in to to watch the Springboks versus um, yeah. versus Lions, the yeah. Lions than they've been watching the Olympics, because first it's you know it, it, rugby is good entertainment. I mean you can get some really dull games, but you know by and large it's it's pretty good entertainment. And so the TV rights, you know, when you think of how much people are paying to broadcast at the Olympics, relative to broadcast the Lions versus the Springboks. That's a relative bargain. So I can see why private equity is is doing it. Now, to your second point, is it good for, for the game? Well, you know, I, the, the, the big challenge is it, I think it means an ever-narrowing of the game. So you see the growing gap between the rugby haves and the rugby have-nots in terms of nations. So, you know, for example, Canada toured England and Wales. And, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, Canada used to put up a decent fight against England and Wales, and now they get thumped by 70 points. So, you know, the, the gaps between the guys who get the TV rights, the English rugby union, the French rugby union, et cetera, and what they can do underneath and the, the other countries just keeps getting wider and wider. So the, the big challenge becomes what happens if rugby becomes a sport for just six or seven countries, which is increasingly what, what, it's, what it's looking like. Um, so my next question would be, what's your view in the middle of the Olympics? And sevens is at, uh, has been its second iteration after Rio. Do yep. you think sevens is an interesting, uh, interesting uh, proposition for for the more global game, if you like, men and women? Yes. yes. First, because maintaining a sevens program, as for example, Hong Kong has done, you know, somewhat successfully, yeah. uh, costs a lot less money. You you don't need, you know, a, a seven squad is twelve guys, twelve guys, one physio. And you know, and you're you're up and running, or oh, 12 girls, one physio, and you're up and running. The big challenge for uh, to do a 15s program is you need 35, 40 guys. You know, five physios. It's like you know, the, the costs are astronomical. So yes, you know, I think if you're, you know, a Spain or Portugal, sevens is 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 the way to go. Now, the downside of sevens, of course, is it's a less inclusive sport. Uh, and by that, I mean that, you know, the beauty about rugby, rugby is pretty much the only sport where whatever physical shape of you might be, whatever size you might be, you can be short and fat and there's a spot for you. You can be tall and lanky and there's a spot for you. Uh, in sevens, you basically need to run the 100 meters in 11 seconds. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, there's no spot for you. You know, you need to be really a top, top-notch athlete uh, and you need to have an acceleration. Otherwise... It's not going to work. Louis, uh, let me come back a little bit on TV rights. Towards the end of the podcast, we like to throw a little, a few bouncers around. Um, Giles mentioned at the start of the podcast, Jerry Cards and Ali buying Toulouse. No. Um, the record will show that um, Mr. Cardinale said something a little bit like you said there about TV rights. You know what happened to TV rights for soccer in yeah. France. Yep. Well, they, they got too greedy. They messed up. Yeah. The, well, the French, that's putting it mildly. <laughs> yeah, they got too greedy. They went, well, you know, it was, but that was, in a sense, so predictable. You know, here you have Canal Plus, company that's been buying you TV rights forever and ever, dependable, you know, listed company, et cetera. Uh, and then you have a Spanish outfit, a startup that comes in and says, we'll pay you 20% more. Medium uh, pro. 
yeah. And it's like, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll do that. It's like, well, well, yeah, your fault, I, I your, fault, your fault for putting all your eggs on one basket. Now, granted, at the same time, they get screwed because COVID hits. So it was sort of yeah. French soccer got hit twice, no TV rights and nobody in the stadium. But, you know, we, in a sense, we rugby benefited from this. Because Kenneth Priest didn't have soccer anymore, they had to make the bet on rugby. And um, rugby was all over French TV during COVID. Um, yeah, when yeah, people were yeah. stuck at home, when people were in lockdown, rugby was allowed to keep going. And we had, you know, we, we had big audiences. And as a result, we're getting more kids starting. And, you know, it's, you want to be in the media because you want the kids to, to sign up. You want the kids to play. Well, one of the things that we talked about in our last podcast was around uh, Pro 14, which has yep. now been rebranded um, by what I think is one of the more progressive agencies called Rock Nation, which if you've seen anything about the rebranding is very significantly different image in terms of rugby. It's very showbiz. It's very snappy, celeb. This podcast talks a lot, a little bit about, you know, trying to find a new audience do you have a view about whether rugby is attracting at all anybody under 20 as a viewing uh, property? I think it is. Um, you know, if, so one of our surprises um, when we had our playoff game at home against Bayonne, basically the, the stadiums had just started to be reopened and mm-hmm. was how young the crowd was. It was all 20-year-olds. Uh, but I think, you know, we... Uh, I think rugby does a good job of attracting uh, other other folks, and I should mention our on this front our our main sponsor. I don't know if you guys know this, but uh, our main sponsor is uh, the gay app Grinder. Right. So the next season we'll be playing with Grinder on our jersey, and so to your point about reaching out, you know, or doing things that are perhaps outside of what people expect. You know, that's way outside, like, Louis. I can tell you that that is way outside. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, rugby rugby has always been a very very inclusive sport. Um, you know, the the Stade Français used to play in pink to to promote gay rights, and so rugby, I would say, is far more both inclusive and broad thinking than than perhaps soccer, and that includes both the players on the fields, the management, and perhaps most importantly, the the fans themselves. Yeah. I would agree with that. So, so Lou, before we finish, you've talked a little bit about what constitutes a successful season on the pitch next year, which is you know survival and another season. And as a Fulham fan, I know all about that. No, no, no. Hold on, hold um, on. A successful season is a title. Okay. All right. Okay. No, that's a hey, realistic, that's, a realistic that's, season. That's good. Survival. All right. no, listen, I, I love it. But from the off-field perspective, in terms of the club as a business, um, the By club. The way, sorry, a, I'm interrupting you again. Put your money on us staying. We'll oh no no! I've already I, I, I'm already ahead of you. That, I will definitely have some money. I'll be following the, the team's exploits religiously this year for we'll, sure. We'll I can't, stay I, up. We'll stay up. I'm but, very but, confident. But, but stay up. What what constitutes a successful from the business side of this? Because obviously this is still it's what three and a half years you're into this yep. project, and now you're back in the big leagues, and that's a period of consolidation on the on the field, but also you know in the boardroom. So how, how what would a successful off field season look like for you? Oh, well, look, a successful off field season for us. You know, immediately, financially, the fact that we move up, we get big TV rights, et cetera. So that front is nice and 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 that front is good. So what you want to do is not take all that money and blow it on players that uh, that aren't going to 
contribute to the long-term success of the, the club. So you take that money, you reinvest it in your academy, you try to get more youth players and, and you build you build for the future. So, you know, for us, that's, you know, that's our mentality. That's how we're, we're looking at, at this thing. The big challenge we confront and, you know, the fight we're having today is our infrastructure is basically completely obsolete. It was obsolete 20 years ago and it's gotten even worse. Um, and we don't own our infrastructure. We lease it from the town hall that basically wants nothing to do with us. Uh, the, I mean, the mayor has even come out and said, uh, Biarritz is too small a town to, to, to sustain a professional rugby club. So that, you know, that's, that's the big challenge for us is how can we claim to play in the top level with infrastructure that even a third division rugby club in France would sneer at mm-hmm. um, with a town hall that wants nothing to do about it. So where it's, it's that, that's the challenge and it's, uh, it's becoming uh, uh, such a problem that to be honest, we're, we're most likely going to be having to move the club. Um, oh, really? uh, and then, and then, not, well, you know, our working conditions sure. uh, are completely inadequate. Wow. It's a little bit like American franchises. If the, the local uh, town doesn't play ball, you just up sticks and go. Yeah, or like uh, the Wasps did with, um, um, uh, you know, and moved to Coventry. Um, yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's, you know, the Wasps did it. Yes, American franchises do, did it. Obviously, you know, I think going back to, to the very first point we discussed, uh, rugby is very much a notion of territory. So it's, you know... It, It'd be hard. It's, it'd be a very hard thing to do, but uh, we're we're looking. We're today studying uh, different possibilities. Louis, last um, last question from me. A little bit. Uh, we've heard you know the passion come through, um, even at, at distance. And, and I, I had a lot of experience of guys coming into football when I was running the Scottish Premier League, and, and I recognise so much of the passion in your voice and everything like that. I want to ask you something in a little jokey way. How much percentage of your time did you think this would take up when you got that call? And how much are you actually spending? And I want the truth. Um, it hasn't been that bad. It hasn't been no. that bad. No, honestly. <laughs> you're, swear to God. You're, you're picking the players with no arseholes. You're there every no. day. No, because I've, I've, I've delegated very well. And here I have to you know, give credit where credit is due. You know, all the success we've had, uh, it's not, you know, I'm, it's not mine. It's really the two guys I've put in place. I put one guy in charge of everything that's administrative, a guy called Jean-Baptiste Aldiger, who I've mm-hmm. already mentioned, who's the general manager. Um, I hired a, a friend of mine, a Kiwi guy called Matt Clarkin, uh, who used to play for Bordeaux. And I knew him when he was playing at Bordeaux because I was a shareholder at Bordeaux before. And Matt uh, actually captained and uh, managed my uh, Hong Kong tens team. There's a big tournament every year and I put a, a team for the tens and uh, Matt uh, managed that. And, you know, we won the tens three years in a row. And so when we started doing this, I asked Matt, look, you, can you be my director sportif, my, um, yeah. you know, basically the, the head of rugby. Uh, so, uh, you know, Matt, Matt does all the recruitment of players, every, you know, tasks are well delimited. JB doesn't, you know, let's Matt do his job. Matt lets JB do his job. And they, they both they both do a very good job and they both work very hard. And I, I do talk to them every day. Um, I talk to them every day for five, 10 minutes. Uh, they tell me about problems and there's always problems. And that's the, the downside. So they let me know about problems and they tell me the solutions they find. And I say, okay, that, that sounds good. Or no, that doesn't sound good. We shouldn't do that. But it's, it's really sort of 10 minute calls with each one every day. And that's that. You have the huge advantage of being able to offer someone 
the job of director sportif in a French accent instead of head of rugby, <laughs> because that's, that's, that sounds like such a much sexier job than head of rugby. <laughs> Listen, Louis, it's been a fantastic hour. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this with us. Um, for for all the newly uh, minted uh, Beeritz fans, let them know how they can follow the club and follow you and, and kind of keep in touch with us as, as the season progresses, because it's, it's, it's great for everybody to have that, that kind of team that, that is an underdog that they don't know much about that they can follow, especially in a season like this. Yeah, so uh, I'm not really on social media. So you, the best thing is to follow the club. Social media uh, club's handle is BOPB, which stands for Biarritz Olympique Pays Basque. So BOPB web. Club's website is the club's Twitter handle. That's the club's Instagram. So we have, yeah, we have a social media person at the club. And so there's lots of postings. Uh, so that's probably the best way is either Twitter or Instagram. But Instagram probably is the best. Fantastic. And everybody should uh, should should do two things. One, look up the highlights of that of that playoff final because it was extraordinary and two go and put a few quid on uh, on Beerit staying up at the end of this year I'm going to do that exactly Louis I, I know you well enough to know that if you make me a promise like that you're going to keep it so I, it's money in the bank as far as I'm concerned there you this go. Is my friend it's been so good to talk to you <laughs> thank you so much for doing this and um and I'll see you soon I hope pleasure great to see you and I definitely look forward to that come and visit thank you Louis thank you very much cheers bye-bye bye guys bye ah magnifique it's, uh, you know, look, a, a nicer guy than Louis Garve you will not find anywhere. He is just such a prince of a guy. And um, I, I'm really excited for this because I, I know what kind of a guy he is. I know how much he loves his rugby. And, you know, Rog, to, to, to your points, I know how he will, A, embrace the challenge, B, do his best to try and meet it, and C, be absolutely open and honest if it's, if it's you know, a complete and utter struggle that he never expected it to be he, you know he's the first guy that will actually talk about it and you know talk about the the, the difficulties as well as the successes yeah i i was listen i, I know who louis is uh, from 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 following your your work grant but he he was even more engaging talking about sport and um as you say such a, a lovely guy you know we're talking about france and i think it was napoleon that said uh, i prefer a lucky general to a good one so from what I heard about the semi-final and the final, this guy yeah. is carrying Irish leprechauns no. in his pocket. <laughs> no kidding. Look, 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 you know, Louis, Louis deserves all the luck, but, but you're right. He's that guy, right? You just feel like good things are going to happen to Louis. And, uh, you know, the more good things that happen to that guy, the happier I'll be because he's just one in a million. Well, gents, that was another hugely enjoyable hour. All that remains, I guess, is to, is to thank you out there for listening to us and spending this hour with us and with our special guest, Louis Garve. Please follow us on Twitter. If you don't do so already, you'll find us at Entertained R. That's the word, A-R-E. You can find me there, lurking around in the shadows, at T-T-M-Y-G-H. And you can find me, Giles Morgan, hobbling around on one leg now that I have one Achilles left than I did when I was born. Uh, uh, well, what is that Twitter handle? At Giles Morgan 71. <laughs> you you, Giles, you do realise this is, this is your opportunity to get that peg leg you've wanted all these years. Do you know what? The parrots die, but I've got the leg. The wooden so leg. This, this could be your moment. <laughs> I'll finish off with um, RPM Como, as in the lake. As in the lake. Gentlemen, until next time. Bye.